Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 151 of the podcast for July 9th, 2012. My guest today is a good friend of mine. She is Karen Martin. She is the author of a brand new book titled The Outstanding Organization. Generate business results by eliminating chaos and building the foundation for everyday excellence. So I hope you enjoyed this discussion talking about that new book. For a link to this podcast episode, you can go to leanblog.org slash 151. And for all episodes and learning more about how to subscribe in lots of different ways, you can go to leanpodcast.org. Thanks for listening. Karen, thanks for joining us today as a guest on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. So I wonder if you can start off, um, as most guests do, uh, just you know, introduce your, yourself and your professional background. And in particular, it's always interesting to hear, how did you first get introduced to Lean? Ah, good question. So it's a bit of a circuitous path, but I was introduced to Lean in 2000 after working with quality and operations design and managing operations for many, many years in different startups and things like that. And I had no manufacturing experience when I was first introduced to Lean in 2000. And I've been using more the TQM approach to uh, to quality management, mm-hmm. to operations design. And then I was introduced to lean manufacturing. And as I was sitting through the program, it was a program I was actually managing, it just became abundantly clear to me that everything they were talking about applied to the world that I knew, which was primarily healthcare and the white-collar world. And so that's when I, you know, when the, the fire got lit in me and I decided that that was going to be my dedicated career from that point forward. So what, what was it, I'm curious in particular, about lean as opposed to previous approaches that kind of caught your fancy? You know, I felt that lean, and I still feel lean, has had a much more practical, tac- you know, tactical application to it. You know, TQM had quality circles and, and a lot of amazingly, you know, wonderful principles and philosophies, but yet as far as actual tools to help get stuff done, it, it, I felt like it was lacking in that arena. Now, of course, as, as you know, we've gone kind of the opposite direction in the earlier years of Lean, and people got a little too concerned with tools and not enough about some of the practices and principles, and you know, fortunately that's being corrected now. But it just seems, and, and I've experienced, and my clients have experienced much more results because of the practical nature of Lean. And you're right. I mean, the application in the different settings, I mean, it's something a lot of people don't see initially. And maybe you share a little bit. I know you've worked in a lot of different service sector um, fields or you know, types of service industries. Can you share a little bit about kind of the, some of the breadth of, of where you've applied these methods? Sure. You know, I was actually thinking about this before our call. I think the only industry I haven't worked in so far is entertainment. And um, I'd very much like to get into filmmaking, not not for me making films, but to help them. There, there's so much waste in filmmaking, and, and I believe there's no reason why we have to pay 12 bucks a ticket for <laughs> for movies. But, um, you know, it's law enforcement, health care, oil and gas, utilities, financial services, distribution, education, hospitality. Um, what am I missing? Oh, research. Mm-hmm. Um, insurance. I probably missed something there, yeah. but um, <laughs> lots of areas. Yeah. Yeah. So let, let's talk about the book, uh, the outstanding organization. Uh, it's it's not narrowly about quote unquote lean. It's about 
you know, uh, organizational excellence or, or being outstanding. So, you know, tell us a little bit, you know, first off the story of the book and what inspired you and how it came to be. And then we can delve into some of the main messages of the book. But first off, how, how did it come to be? Well, it was brewing for quite a while. I had been, you know, over the years, increasingly concerned with how much money and time companies were spending and angst in some cases trying to implement Lean and Six Sigma and TQM even back in the day, CQI, Continuous Quality Improvement in Healthcare, and, and not really seeing the results that they were capable of seeing and that they really needed to see. And, you know, there have been lots of different theories on why that is, that companies aren't any more successful. And I just didn't think that we had really figured it out yet. Um, you know, and I don't, I'm sure that many more people in the future we'll be building on what I've I've uh, come to know but I started thinking about well why you know what is it that allows anybody else in any other endeavor to be excellent and to achieve success with you know, whatever improvement methodologies they're trying and I looked outside of business to sports and the military and the arts and science to see what you know some of those fundamentals were that they all had in common and what I realized you know so this was not a heavily research based from an academic perspective it's really more of a grassroots, you know, street-based, in-the-trenches-based um, conclusion that I draw is that fundamentally excellence requires that there be four behaviors in place and every single entity that we would, design, we would um, deem excellent had it and it was impeccable clarity, you know, tremendous focus, tremendous discipline, and fully full engagement of whoever was involved in achieving whatever they were achieving. Right, so, so looking at those four, I mean, um, how were, were there other? Like, what was your hypothesis coming in, in into the book? Were there any of these four that were kind of surprising to you, or I'm I'm, I'm curious how it zero how you zeroed in on on these four ideas. Yeah, good question. So when I was looking at all the things that make organizations have what I consider to be a cracked foundation that they're trying mm -hmm. to build on, they, you know, I looked at there were you know, 20 different things that came to me that were problems, but they all seemed to fit very well under these four umbrellas. And, and I, at first I thought that these were four sequential steps, and then I realized they aren't really sequential steps, but they are progressive, and they are interdependent, so you can't really have one without some of the others being in place, kind of like you know the eight ways and lean. One one begets another one. Um, so I started thinking about clarity and, and realizing, in retrospect, to, you know, reflecting back on all my clients, that the lack of clarity was fundamentally the the biggest problem of them all, and in various different aspects of lack of clarity. So that became number one, and then uh, as I was testing my hypothesis with colleagues, it was interesting to see how many people said, well, what's the difference between clarity and focus? Mm -hmm. And so then I started you know, getting much more clear on what I meant by focus, and it was more of the, you know, avoiding organizational ADD, attention deficit disorder type of focus. And then that led into, well, if you're clear and you've got focus, then, you know, what else is not working? And to me, it was that organizations have pretty woeful lack of discipline and, and almost resist discipline because they fear rigidity and bureaucracy, which is not at all the case. You don't have, they, don't, they don't go together necessarily. And then I realized that if you had all three of those in place, you're in a far greater position to have full engagement 
of the workforce because they know very clearly what they should be working on. The company's not jerking them around from project to project. There's a methodical and predictable way you go about doing business, and you know, voila, um, you will get people far more engaged in their work. Right. And I'm curious, what are some of the organizations that you uncovered? You mentioned some of the, the places you look to, Sports World and uh, the Blue Angels. Um, for, for clarity, let's say, and, and uh, first off, you know, does clarity, I guess, refer to that clarity of purpose of, you know, why are we in business? What are we really trying to do beyond making widgets? Is that? That's the kind of highest level of clarity. And yes, you know, I, my view is that that's absolutely essential. You don't have to necessarily go know exactly where you're going five years from now, but you certainly need to know where you're going in the next six months and the next year in order to get, you know, full alignment and, and galvanize the workforce toward achieving that goal. Um, so when I looked at performance, I first looked at individual performers. I looked at the star performers in all the sports areas and in the arts. And that was when I kind of connected the dots that they were supremely clear about what it was they were hoping to achieve. And then I looked at organizations. and looked at, you mentioned the Blue Angels. You know, the Blue Angels has kind of been my... Um, my most outstanding organization that I've been looking at for the two or three years it took me to write the book. And gosh, they are so, so clear in everything they do. It's not just the goals. It's language. It's what's expected, the roles and responsibilities, who does what, how they do it. Everything is extremely clear, which makes responding to the truly unpredictable much easier to do. And and I yeah I know the Blue Angels is a, a favorite organization of yours. I mean, what are what are some specific lessons? Because I might look and say, well, you know, of course the Blue Angels. I mean, they're uh, such a, a elite, top notch, highly trained, creme de la creme type organization. What what are some of the practical lessons that come from say the Blue Angels? So one of the things that they do that I found really intriguing, and let me back up for a moment. Um, you know, you know and, and several others know that I run Kaizen events on a fairly regular basis. It's not you know, by any means the only way that I teach organizations to improve, but it is one of the first um, behavior-shifting activities that I recommend organizations attempt because there are several behaviors in a Kaizen event that you build that you really can't build in any, or it's very difficult to build in any other way. One of them is blocking out everything around you and focusing on one thing at a time. And you know, we've become very addicted to what some people call multitasking, but that's not possible. It's, it's switch tasking. Mm, yep. And so the Blue Angels, for example, have a very Kaizen event-like model in that before every show, they block out everything. No one is allowed in the room. I mean, occasionally a former angel will come in. Media is not allowed in. No one of any you know, notoriety is allowed in. And they focus on the show, and they, they do nothing but focus on the show. And then after the show, they come back into the room, and this is when they're still you know, completely drenched in sweat as they are at the end of a 45- to 50-minute show. After they've you know, waved everyone and shaken a few hands, they come back in, and for up to two hours, they don't let anyone in the room, and they go over the film over and over mm. and over and over, you know, seeking perfection. And the organizations just don't discipline themselves to have that kind of focus and to allow that kind of focus so that people can get stuff done and get it done well and get it done quickly. 
So that's, that was one lesson that I thought was really intriguing, intriguing that the Blue Angels does. Yeah, I mean, that, I, I guess the thing that's surprising to me is not the preparation that's involved, but that, that study and that reflection and that analysis after the fact. That's a really kind of interesting idea of, um, of, of taking that time and, and analyzing what we've done. Because I'm sure you know, they, they could get complacent. They put on amazing shows and they have a great safety record, but it sounds like each and every time that, that's an important part of their approach. That's interesting. Right, and I and I think that you could you know people can argue and say, well, but the Blue Angels, I mean, they're performing you know death-defying maneuvers, and they better not make mistakes. And da, da, da. well, you know, every business has their version of critical critical mistakes. I mean, even if you're you know in an industry where you're not going to kill people, like in healthcare, there still are critical mistakes that can make or break an organization and make or break the relationship it has with its customers. And so, to not take the time to you know, deeply reflect on what's working well and what's not working well and being honest about it, mm-hmm. you know, having, having clarity around it uh, is just missing a huge opportunity and certainly not going to make an organization become outstanding. Yeah, and well, there's an interesting thought. I mean, I wonder how many surgical teams actually do a formal debrief even for 10 minutes, yet alone hours and hours after each case. People are so busy, they just fly on into the next procedure and... That's an interesting idea to see if someone could apply that. Yeah, surgical room churn and and the rapidity of that churn is a big thing because it's revenue producing. But, you know, to not, like you say, I mean, to not take that time to reflect. And you have to do it real time. No one remembers anything, you know. or I mean, it's harder to remember things when you do it hours later, which is why the Blue Angels, you know, immediately doing it is a great model for all of us, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, so other than the Blue Angels, who are some of the other organizations that you cite or make reference to? I'm sure you talk about Toyota. Who are, who are some of the others? Yeah, absolutely. Toyota is, of course, one of our models. Um, you know, I have little bits and pieces of my own client experiences that I, I bring into the book. And they're not, I, don't, I don't actually case study any one client. Um, outside of my client base, W.L. Gore, I think, is an organization that has shown consistent outstandingness. I mentioned Intel. Um, I also have a, a couple of stories about Menlo Innovations, which is a small company uh, based in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and led by Richard Sheridan, who has it's a software shop, and they have they're probably the closest thing to being an outstanding organization I've seen at that size. Um, and he and he definitely operates with a Toyota esque approach. Um, let's see who else is in the book. Trying to think of all the, all the different people in the book that um, I I stole from. Oh, there's a one of my clients is a wonderful small hospital group in Central Florida. It's uh, Florida Hospital in Deland, right. and I worked with three of the Adventist hospitals in Central Florida, bringing uh, Lean into the organization, helping them in their early stages of transformation, and they were you know very open to experimenting with some of the things that they thought were you know, incredibly foreign to them that we've learned from Toyota and others and have done a phenomenal job. They've just really done a great job at transforming at all levels. And, and I know Florida Hospital has done a lot of, uh, a lot of that work has been done within a formal lean methodology context. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Well, and you know, so I asked you about the examples. Um, I think people are always curious. But you know, one thing I like about the book 
is that it's not just, oh, here's a bunch of things from other companies you should copy, that you've conceptualized it and you have these these principles and, and these ideas for, I mean, would you fair to say for, you know, a reader, regardless of their company or industry, should read the book and reflect and figure out how do they apply these ideas in their own organization? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll even go out on a limb and say that I'm pretty anti-benchmarking. Mm-hmm. Um, so my feelings about benchmarking is that here's, there's only one way that benchmarking is good, and it's if you go into it with a curiosity mindset and not a duplication mindset. Yeah. You know, so I, I very much believe that it's worth going in and seeing one's competitors and how they handle different situations, you know, if they can get in. It's good intel to have, if nothing else. But, you know, as you know, many people go into benchmarking and say, oh, I like that, let's do that in my organization. And that's not the way to become outstanding. Yeah. Um, one other thing I want to delve into a little bit while we have the time is um, the employee engagement piece. I mean, you talk about full engagement being one of those four principles. I mean, would you say it's the most important principle or what? how, how does it tie in um, Ooh, to the bigger most. picture? You're asking me to choose my four <laughs> children. <laughs> well, then don't choose. That's okay. But it's important, right? Uh, I was, I'll say this, I don't think you can have full engagement without having a pretty good handle on the other three. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the four clarity-focused discipline engagement and you say which one doesn't belong, I would say engagement because it's, it's the result of setting the conditions for engagement as opposed to being you know, a condition in and of itself. And that's because we can't force people to do what we want them to do. They will do what they're going to do based on what they're experiencing. So I do think it's probably the, you know, the end state that you're looking for. But importance, it might be more important to set the other three in place just so you've got that, you know, environment that will entice people to be engaged and keep them from disengaging. Yeah, because I mean, I guess the idea of forcing and saying you need to be engaged or else is not... Very engaging <laughs> style. No, no, that's not how the human mind and the heart work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and yeah, and I think that's an important thing for business, and not just in healthcare, but in other other industries. Uh, engaging not just the head but the heart um, as yep. well. I mean, I think that's a really important thing. Um, so, you know, kind of wrapping up, and again, you know, the the book is called The Outstanding Organization. Um, who, who do you, in your mind, who are the target readers um, for the book? The book has two audiences at a, at, that I've you know, intentionally targeted toward. One is the people that are dedicated to improvement, either full-time dedicated to improvement or they have a shared responsibility. And then the other one is managers all the way through executives that are running operations and, and are interested in being better and, and finding more effective ways to accomplish what they want to accomplish. So it's a dual, a dual audience. And so, you know, speaking to, to one or both those audiences, um, kind of you know, wrapping up with a real open-ended question. I mean, if you had one piece of sage advice for business owners, um, chief executives, or real senior level folks, I mean, what, what would that advice be? Only one, eh? Um, I would say ruthlessly prioritize. I think that this jerking people and departments around causes more dysfunction and more chaos in an organization than anything else they could do. Um, so I think getting much more clear on what, you know, what direction you're heading in so that you can ruthlessly prioritize, it's, that's a, 
a precondition, but then, you know, really taking an honest look at what all is in process, reprioritize it based on what's going to get you where you need to go, you know, the most quickly, and simply reduce, stop doing much of that until you complete other projects. So reducing the number of active projects at any given time once you've ruthlessly prioritized, and then stick to it. So that was more than one, sort of, but... (laughs) Trying to prioritize pieces of advice. I mean, okay, so what, what's what's another? I'll, I'll open the, the door to that. <laughs> yeah, okay. So th- that prioritization is number one. I yeah. would say number two is to start telling and seeking the truth. You know, clarity is, you know, the the more, I guess, non-charged way of saying, you know, stop lying. And, and lying is either, you know, omission or commission. And and it's everything from data that doesn't represent reality to terminology that's not clear to sugarcoating messages. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, clarity is really about seeing the truth in, in all levels of an organization and in all ways. And, and that's the toughest nut to crack, I think, for many organizations is, is creating a safe environment where people start seeking the truth, seek to really learn how processes are performing, for example, Seek to learn what the customers really think, not what data is saying, et cetera. And I, I think that would, that would be number two, or maybe number one, even. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that idea of, of truth and honesty, to me, that's a big part of the uh, the Toyota notion of respect for people. Is that you're, you know, you're you're honest, you're direct, you're you're forthright. Um, I, I think that's a, a really critical piece. So maybe a you know, final question, maybe on on that end. I mean, do you see that? Generally, outstanding organizations are are better at you know framing it in this this way. Uh, better at practicing respect for people than organizations that aren't performing well over the long term. Absolutely, absolutely. yeah. It, it is a direct correlation from what I've seen, and and it's it's very very um, direct. It's you know literally you can the more you have respect for people in the organization, and respect isn't just how you treat them, as you know. It's it's also whether they're given the opportunity to be creative and to have a, a say in how work's done at a tactical level, and you know, we could go on about that. But it's it's a direct correlation um, between how much someone is shown respect and how the organization performs. Well, it's uh, it's important stuff, and um, congratulations on the book being out. Again, the title is. The Outstanding Organization. We've been talking with um, Karen Martin. Uh, Karen, if, if you don't mind doing a quick rundown of, of website and contact info, um, how can people reach you uh, to, sure. to talk about this, find the book, all of that? Sure, sure, sure. Thanks. Um, so my website is www.ksmartin.com. That's K-S-M-A-R-T-I-N.com. And then that has you know ample links to all the different ways to buy the book. And uh, yeah, I welcome welcome everyone to to check it out. And I want to thank you, Mark. This was really fun, and it was nice. It was really nice for you and I to release our book on the same week. And yeah. <laughs> um, I wish you you well with Healthcare Kaizen as well. Well, thank you, and uh, again, congratulations. And um, it's it's always great talking to you. This is just the first time we've recorded that conversation and shared it with others. So. That's true. That's yeah. right. This is the first. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, hopefully we, we can do this again and, and delve into some of these topics uh, a little bit more deeply. So uh, again, Karen like Martin, that. author of The Outstanding Organization and other great books. You can find those at ksmartin.com. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mark. 
Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.